Time for Fascism, your weekly podcast updating you on the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the Department of Homeland Security. I'm going to be talking about continued right-wing vigilantism and also talking about a specific targeting on behalf of police violence in the United States. All right, this week, a report was issued uh, by a whistleblower from the Department of Homeland Security, that's DHS, uh, regarding their prioritization of domestic, like, domestic threats to the United States' security, right? That's one of the things that the DHS does. Now, if you don't remember, or God, I guess you might not have been around when it happened, um, back during the W. Bush administration, uh, he created a new cabinet-level position, the Department of Homeland Security, that was supposed to, like, consolidate a bunch of domestic security stuff as opposed to the Defense Department, which is internationally facing. Uh, so the DHS is a sort of, like, new conglomeration of a bunch of different parts of the federal government. One of the things that it does is rate and prioritize the threats that the federal government recognizes to the safety of the United States and its government, you know, its people. Um, and what we learned from a recent whistleblower report is that the DHS has been systemically, systematically uh, downplaying the threat of right-wing vigilantes and right-wing violence and right-wing organizations uh, for some time now, for a really long time. Uh, this shouldn't surprise anybody, obviously. Uh, the DHS is a defense organization. It's part of the federal government. Um, and the fact that they are unable, unwilling to see the right wing as the kind of threat that they clearly are uh, to many people in the United States uh, isn't, you know, that's shocking. Uh, it's pretty standard, honestly. This is, of course, despite the fact that uh, over the last several decades in the United States, specifically and especially since the 1970s, the vast majority of terrorist activity and political violence perpetrated uh, by U.S. citizens or in the United States uh, has been by right wing people as opposed to the left. Um, you know, a lot of times when people think about political violence in the United States or revolutionary violence in the United States, they think about weatherman, right? You know, they think about 60s radicals, they think about SDS, they think about setting bombs and stuff. But really what they should be thinking about is, you know, Timothy McVeigh. They should be thinking about Oklahoma City bombing, right? Uh, they should be thinking about uh, people who bomb abortion clinics. Um, they should be thinking about murders and threats of murder against uh, doctors who perform abortion. Um, they should be thinking about the regular threats that um, left wing or socialist or even just like kind of liberal members of Congress receive. Um, obviously, they should also be thinking about uh, police violence, uh, but you, the DHS is not going to be uh, really regulating that. Um, they don't consider that to be under their purview. Of course, one of the other things that this means is that the DHS is overemphasizing the threat posed to the United States uh, by the left and by anti-fascists in particular. Um, now, there's a sense in which this might be sort of like flattering uh, to some people on the left um, because it's a sort of like inflated image of the danger that the left could pose or an inflated image of their power. Uh, unfortunately, as a historian, I'm obligated to inform you that uh, when the right wing 
And when the sort of defense apparatus of a government, especially the military apparatus of government, believes that the left is a credible threat, like to them, it's a credible threat to the safety of the government and probably specifically to them, uh, that's when they start to do extremely dangerous shit, right? That's when they start to attack people. That's when they start to abduct people. That's when uh, extra legal activity uh, in the name of partisan political violence starts to become more conceivable to them. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that we can really begin to expect to be coming from the government uh, in a way that it hasn't on a mass scale for a while in the United States. And part of that is because the left has been relatively weak over the last several decades. Um, but part of it is also because now there's this narrative uh, for these attacks to be you know, understood under, to be justified under, right? That there's this narrative of left-wing violence, of left-wing incursion, of insurgency. Uh, there are people who are even blaming anti-fascists for the massive fires that are taking place in the West Coast, which is just bizarre. And it's very confusing. Um, it's, an evident, it's evidence of, you know, the conspiracy theories that have been uh, pervasive on the right wing for the last uh, several years, uh, just sort of metastasizing and becoming like completely disconnected from reality in a way that they, you know, previously they were sort of like about standard right-wing conspiracisms, you know, about, about, uh, anti-Semitic conspiracies, about, uh, you know, shadowy puppet masters and that sort of thing. Um, in any case, all of which is to say, uh, we can fully expect, uh, the DHS and the rest of the government in the United States, uh, to continue along this track of overemphasizing the danger that the left wing faces or that the left wing poses, uh, to the government. Okay. Uh, speaking of, uh, supposed left wing dangers to the United States and the government's response to them, I want to talk about a particular incident, um, of a government response to left-wing organizing in the United States. Um, this week, uh, the co-chair of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States today, and the third largest in its history, uh, was abducted uh, on the street by uh, unnamed, unidentified individuals. Uh, it later turned out that these people were uh, the sheriff's department, of Washington and that they were investigating his involvement in and organizing of Black Lives Matter protests uh, in the region. Now, to those of you who have been paying attention to the news uh, over the last several months, especially coming out of the Pacific Northwest, uh, this is not a surprise, right? And these are tactics that the local law enforcement and also federal law enforcement, that's DHS, uh, have been using uh, in the region um, in order to attack uh, the government's partisan enemies, you know, in order to get at their political enemies, the left, uh, the organized left. Um, now, the DSA is currently the largest explicitly socialist organization in the United States, but they are not, of course, uh, the sole opponent uh, that the United States identifies in this particular fight. Um, and they are, of course, not currently the recipients of the brunt of uh, the government's state violence. Um, that has been applied historically, uh, recently historically, uh, primarily to uh, black organizers and organizers, people of color, um, who have been involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, so we're talking about the Ferguson uprisings uh, several years ago. Many of those organizers uh, have since 
been attacked or and some of them have died. Um, the organizers of, you know, indigenous protests um, against pipelines uh, have been attacked, um, assaulted, um, imprisoned illegally or illicitly. You know, they, these things are too numerable to mention uh, in, in, in 15 minutes. Um, but the fact is that there's just a litany of increasing state violence being deployed by the United States uh, against ideological opponents, against political opponents. Um, and that's something that we're just going to have to expect the government to engage in a lot more, like increasingly, um, as time goes on. And of course, speaking of right-wing violence and threats of violence, uh, I have to continue to talk about um, incidents of these in the United States. Uh, this week, we have seen several, again, too many to count, uh, too many to list here. Uh, to the point that it would actually not be particularly productive to do so. Um, but DSA organizers, Black Lives Matters organizers, um, organizers of all sorts of political ideologies and movements have been uh, receiving threats. Uh, in one particular incident in Portland, Maine, not Portland, Oregon, but Portland, Maine, uh, Black Lives Matter organizers uh, canceled their rally. They postponed it specifically because they had been threatened by right-wing militants who were threatening to be present at these protests uh, with guns that they, we know now, are prepared to use. Right-wing militants, having gone through the last several months of radicalization and organization and preparation, are ready to actually kill people. Now, for many people in the United States, this particular situation, knowing that one's life is literally on the line uh, when protesting in the streets, when organizing, or simply when being present in the world, is not new. Uh, for people of color, this is a reality in the United States, and that's the origin of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, indigenous people's movements, many other political movements in the United States, specifically around uh, race, around gender and uh, sexuality discrimination are about these issues. What is, what is something singular about this particular political movement is that rather than being, rather than being a, an, an act of like completely fringe groups the kind of partisan violence that we are seeing perpetrated in the streets in the United States today is accepted, endorsed, and even welcomed by many people in power on the, in the right wing. Um, now, this represents a sort of like a major shift, like a tectonic shift in the makeup of the right wing of the mainstream right wing in the United States. Uh, a breakout of the extreme right into the mainstream, uh, a reorganization of the right-wing political coalition in this country. Uh, this is something that did not start in 2016, um, but 2016 was maybe a watershed moment uh, where it became necessary to pay attention to this particular kind of political coalition building that Trump and his administration and all the Republicans who have followed suit uh, have been building on. Now, as I've expressed many times in this podcast, 
Donald Trump himself is not a fascist. Most of the people in his government are not fascists. What I'm saying is that there are people in the government of the United States and in many state governments as well, many local governments, who recognize and understand that they are working with fascists. People forming alliances, cooperation with them. Uh, sometimes we can see this literally on the street in videos of protests where right-wing protesters are treated n not just with like politeness by the police, but, but actually physically aided by them. Uh, police giving right-wing protesters rides, providing them with food and water, uh, preemptively telling them that there's some sort of crackdown going to go down and, you know, you got to get out of here. Even aiding them in locating or policing the left, actively using them as allies in the street. So that's on the technical level. On the strategic level, you know, above the street level, Donald Trump and his allies are using right-wing rhetoric, extremist right-wing rhetoric, that even back in the 90s, back in the 2000s, would have been relegated to the, the pages of like the National Alliance newsletter, you know, like a, an actual neo-Nazi newsletter. Instead, we see these things made mainstream, made acceptable and understandable uh, to like a third of the United States. And I know that this might not be news to anybody, but the fact is that as these incidents of right-wing violence, uh, as these threats of right-wing violence become more prevalent, as they become more normal, they're just going to be a part of how this country functions. I am warning you that you will become used to them. They will become a normal part of the news. Uh, people become inured to these kinds of things. Uh, this is something that happens to people in countries that are facing this sort of political mobilization that we are facing. Um, and it's a challenge for, for everyone, in, including maybe especially myself as a person who's relatively majorly privileged um, compared to many other people in the United States and certainly across the world. We have to try to remain like aghast and appalled by these kinds of activities uh, to maintain that they can't be a part of a society that we want to live in, to try to fight them and organize against them, uh, and to, at the very least, pay attention to and document them. Also, I want to issue a correction. I was informed by a listener that uh, in a previous episode, I, it, it seemed like I was implying that uh, Jacob Blake, the person who was shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, had died from his injuries. Uh, Jacob Blake it did not die, uh, as you and I are well aware, and I apologize for being misleading on that front. All right, that was this week's 15 Minutes of Fascism. Again, I'm Craig Johnson. I want to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music uh, for their graphics and uh, intro and outro. I'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.